0: Hiya, Ed here with your friendly reminder to check the show notes for any content warnings related to this episode of the Unbreakable Movie Chain. Also, just in case we've fucked up massively and made any big old spoilers related to any other movies, we'll pop those in the show notes too so you can consider yourselves fully warned. Thank you, enjoy the episode. Welcome to The Unbreakable Movie Chain, the podcast where each episode we watch and break down a movie based on a link to the previous episode's movie. I'm Ed Howes and I'm joined by my co-host, Madeline Gould. Gould.
1: Hello, Ed. You all right?
0: I'm very well. How are you doing? <laughs> yeah, I'm good. Uh, what have you been watching?
1: Well, um, I've had a lovely couple of weeks, actually. I've seen a couple of things that just um, I plugged some gaps um, for me. The other mm-hmm. night, me and uh, Richard were sat there thinking, what should we watch, what should we watch? And we've watched Groundhog Day which I'd never seen before oh my goodness Ah, <laughs> oh, I loved it so much I'm so <laughs> delighted that I loved it it's just brilliant so that was a really good one and uh, we went to the cinema to see Pedro Almodovar's uh, new short film starring Ethan Hawke and Pedro Pascal uh, mm-hmm. A Strange mm-hmm. Way of Life it was in cinemas for one night only and uh, yet yeah, that was um, fine <laughs> 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 it's, I mean, oh. it's unbelievably stylish. Of course. But we got to the end of it, and I was like, I want a feature length film about these people. I don't quite mm. understand why it was a short. It felt rushed, and there was an enormous amount going on. And I suppose it, it speaks to the quality of the filmmaking that it was really compelling. The characters were really compelling. It was a really interesting idea. It looks great. It sounds great. And I wanted more of it, and I didn't feel satisfied by the runtime. Like, it could have been a 90-minute film and I would have been really happy with that. They're both fantastic in it, the two main actors, and it's, yeah, really good, really good fun. It was followed by a filmed Q&A with Pedro Almodovar, which was really interesting and he is such a character. Like, I just... I, I, I hi, highly recommend going away and um, watching him be interviewed because he's just, he's always really interesting and he just goes off on one. Like the people interviewing him never need to ask him questions because he just starts talking.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's like it's he, like uh, I think Billy Connolly was Michael Parkinson's favourite guest because he'd just say a thing and Connolly would go off for half an hour. Oh <laughs> really. Stories. Yeah, I think so.
1: And uh, yeah, the other notable thing, obviously, I've been doing my uh, Shocktober thirty-one films in October yes. horror movie, which so far has been going really well. The, the thing is, I'm not I'm not watching a movie a day because mm-hmm. I'm going to a film festival this weekend called Mayhem Film Festival, where I'm watching fourteen horror movies in four days. So that's going to be really intense. I don't want to mm-hmm. burn out before I get there. And also, I'm going to cover the majority of the films that I'm going to be watching. Um, over a really short space of time so but yeah there are some films in there I know you've seen a trailer for one of them you texted me about the trailer for um, Hundreds of Beavers is uh, (laughs) one of the movies doesn't it look
0: great oh it looks fab I'd like just bonkers I, I love the look of that. I have to I have to seek it out absolutely. And, uh, yeah, and watch it.
1: But the main film I want to chat to you about that I've seen since we last spoke is Emerald Fennel's new film, Saltburn, mm-hmm. which I saw um, as part of the London Film Festival. It was absolutely packed in the cinema. There was such a buzz. I was really excited for it because I loved Promising Young Woman, which was her directorial debut. Have you seen Promising Young Woman?
0: have yeah no I thought it was fine I thought yeah I liked it plenty <laughs> yeah
1: yeah it was I mean I am um, I liked it with quite a, an intense passion it re- oh, really it really yeah I really 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 loved it like to the point where it's like Emerald Fennel is now a director who I'm pumped for what she does next and I'm really cool. glad to say that Saltburn didn't disappoint in any way Um, it made me feel a whole load of feelings it made me feel so uncomfortable but mm in like a really quality filmmaking way. It made Richard feel so uncomfortable he had to leave.
0: Oh, really? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear.
1: (laughs) And he was like, like, the film is clearly extremely good because it starts off at Oxford University in 2006 and mm-hmm. me and Richard were both at university in 2006, granted not Oxbridge, but just seeing students in 2006, we both just felt it was like, it was a bit of like, a oh, God, oh, no, mm. like, you know, like, um, like waking up with a hangover and then suddenly remembering a terrible thing you did the night before. It felt like <laughs> haunting. Um, yes. But the performances are unbelievably good. They are so good, particularly it's worth going to see Saltburn for Rosamund Pike and Richard E. Grant, who are... Ah absolutely exquisite in this film Mm. they are so good it's so funny and so horrifying it's just brilliant and it's a film that just keeps manipulating and playing with your expectations the whole Mm. way through Um, I think that she is a really 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 clever filmmaker and I am super excited for anything that she's going to do in the future but yeah when it hits cinemas I cannot recommend Saltburn highly enough and I can't wait to hear what you think of it Ed because I've just now got a feeling like maybe somewhere in my brain like ah oh, maybe you'll hate it <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh my god
1: <laughs> so yeah i please go and see it so that
0: so that i can ease your mind
1: it would be even worse if you were just like yeah it's all right that would be so much worse because then it then I, that makes me question myself more uh, that makes me be like oh god am i amping up this thing that's only mediocre
0: and it's a wonderful thing to have an artist that you that that, that feels like yours that speaks to you so strongly, yeah. um, even if they don't speak to other people that strongly, you know. You, yeah. you, like I, I have it with recording artists, and I, mm-hmm. I got it with filmmakers as well. So that's a really important thing, yeah, in life. Awesome. So don't don't feel too bad about that. <laughs>
1: anyway, yeah. So- <laughs> <laughs> when I
0: inevitably come back and just shrug and say, "Yeah, it was all right."
1: And what was really wonderful about it at the end, I came out of it and I had a real buzz on. And I was like, gosh, it's been a while actually since I left a cinema with this much of a buzz on. But it it like past lives that we both really loved. I didn't have a buzz on, it really affected me and I felt really strongly about Mm. it, but it was very contemplative. I felt like I really needed to be alone. Whereas, Saltburn, I came out and I immediately made friends with two ladies. Shout out to Kat and Sally. I immediately made friends with them and started going up because we were all like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, this film. That's a really special experience. It is absolutely the kind of film that you could sit back and watch and think what the fuck is this <laughs> like what is this but <laughs> everyone was on board for it like everyone took emerald fennel's hand and was like yeah okay I'll go with you on this um Ooh. and so it got super weird and it was like all right <laughs> great ed what have you been watching
0: i mean not not really much to talk about a couple of trips to the cinema so i saw yeah, the lessons starring uh, Richard E. Grant and Julie Delpy. I say starring, they're not really the uh, protagonists. They're sort of um, Richard E. Grant is is very much the antagonist. Um Darryl McCormick is the uh, is mm. the lead, plays this writer who has taken a tutoring job and Richard E. Grant is this sort of Martin Amis-like literary giant who is also uh, grieving the loss of his son um and struggling to finish a novel. It's a sort of very quiet thriller. It's not a particularly thrilling thriller, but it but it is a, a sort of psychological twisty thing, and it's it. I enjoyed it on the whole, but there was some stuff in the dialogue that annoyed me. Like a lot of the dialogue felt like the writer going, "Hey, look what things I've read," <laughs> you know. It so it felt a little bit pleased with itself, uh, yeah. slightly unjustifiably. But well, as I say. I did enjoy it on the whole, and I think that Alice Trout the director is probably really one to watch in the future. Um, mm. because, I mean, the thing looks gorgeous and there is tension in the story and the way it's told as well. So actually, as a piece of filmmaking, I think it's, I think it's quite accomplished. There's just aspects of the script that bugged me personally. Um, yeah. that- Richard E. Grant's terrific, as always. I think he's always been an actor who has a lot of fun. There's just such a sense of joy that I get coming out of pretty much all of his performances, like going all the way back to to Withnail. He's so clearly having the time of his life playing the part, you know. Um, And I I don't think he's ever lost that sort of joy. Um, The other thing I went to see was uh, The Creator, which is Gareth Edwards' new one, sort of epic sci-fi Blockbuster, which actually I I really quite liked in the end. There's some real again sort of dialogue issues. There's real sort of clunky dialogue at the start that kind of put me off for a little while. I was like, uh, I'm not sure what I think of this. And for a while, it felt a little bit okay. Been there, done that. It's all sort of about a sort of war between humans and robots. But as it went on, it sort of revealed itself to be a lot more kind of thoughtful. And um, it's not sort of balls-to-the-wall kind of constant action, 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 action. There's a lot of sort of philosophical stuff in there. But when the action happens, it's lightning fast. It hits you. Often the violence in it is is so sudden and kind of decisive um, that it, ha- it has real impact. It also features a great performance from a young girl, Madeleine Voiles. Yeah, if she sticks around in the industry, I think the sky's the limit to where she could go. When I was watching it, Um, the sort of the ideas about technology and and science and our approach to science they're they're sort of recurrent themes in the creator i mean it's called the creator oh, we're going to talk about this in a moment. The, these themes go back and back and back through through science fiction. Um so the you know obviously um the Terminator movies, Blade Runner, um with the sort of machines versus humanity, how can we possibly coexist? Those thoughts and ideas, but also uh, going all the way back to Fritz Lang's Metropolis and indeed all the way back to uh Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which is uh, quite fortuitous but uh? <laughs> <laughs> um, because th- this feels like probably a good moment to talk about what we came here to talk about. So, yeah, we'll talk about what we came here to talk about, which is 1931's Frankenstein.
1: So, Ed, um, Frankenstein was your choice following on from Jurassic Park. Why did you choose Frankenstein?
0: So, for for the reasons that we were just kind of talking about. So, in Jurassic Park, uh, we've got John Hammond, who creates... ...Jurassic Park and has a, a sort of stunning kind of hubristic disregard for science in his own responsibility... ...which is a theme that we were just talking about when it comes to the creator going all the way back to Frankenstein, or indeed, back further than that. Because, of course, Frankenstein, based on the novel by Mary Shelley, is subtitled, so it's Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus. Should we chat a little bit about Prometheus? Yeah, let's give a bit of
1: context to that.
0: He wasn't one of the Olympian gods. He was was, uh, descended from the Titans, which Mm. predated the Olympian gods. And he actually uh, has been credited with creating humanity. He made humanity out of clay, and he always had an affinity with his creation. And so he gave uh, the fire of the Olympian gods, he gave to humanity and was then punished. Do you know how he was punished?
1: I know, this is the bit I know. I, <laughs> I'd, I'd forgotten all the other stuff. So yeah, he was chained to a rock and uh, an, eagle, is an eagle came and ate his liver out of his body every day for eternity. This eagle would fucking come and eat his liver and then his liver would grow back and then the eagle would come and fucking eat it out again. There are some unbelievable paintings of prometheus if you oh like God. if you ah oh, the imagery in prometheus like the prometheus legend him chained to the rocks and stuff it's so epic like, yeah. i really highly recommend having a little google or some of that some of those paintings because they're, they're amazing
0: yeah they are and yeah that's sort of prometheus in a nutshell um and those yeah ideas of uh of creation and punishment for such creation have um, recurred again and again and again through our stories.
1: Well, kind of as well as sort of a um, demonization of someone who tries to take on the power of a god. Mm. So it's about kind of an interloper, a figure who in some way falsely thinks that they're going to be able to be as powerful as a god. And then it all goes fucking terribly wrong and it's awful. Like Prometheus getting chained to his rock like he had the audacity to think that he could be as powerful as a god i know i don't need to say this ed i'm Mm -hmm. gonna say it anyway but just to be absolutely completely fucking clear frankenstein is the creator not the monster (laughs) for (laughs) anyone who doesn't know that because it is it's a really common misconception frankenstein is the name of the creator and the creature or monster is frankenstein's monster it's not the prometheus figure is Frankenstein, the creator, not the monster. I mean, for a future bonus episode um, where we're going to be discussing monsters, and I was like looking at lists of monsters. And even on in some of the kind of most respected publications, Time Out, for example, on lists of monsters, they say Frankenstein and are referring to the monster and not the, not the creator.
0: So it happens all the time. It's such a frightening name. Frankenstein is, it feels, and, and possibly that's the sort of, cultural associations that we have with the name now but it it feels sort of gothic and ominous and yeah should we do a timed synopsis (laughs) all right so as i say the film is an hour and 10 minutes long that means you've got 70 seconds and your time starts now so um
1: henry frankenstein has uh, dropped out of medical school Um, And retreated into the mountains to an abandoned clock tower with his assistant Fritz, where he is conducting experiments that were too extreme for him to conduct at the university he was studying at. His fiancée and his fiancée's um i don't i mean he's an odd one isn't he um so mm. it's it's um henry's mate who is openly in love with his fiance but it's fine for him to hang around some for some reason mm. anyway um they are worried about him and are like he hasn't been writing any letters and it's all a bit strange so they go to henry's professor at the university and um, and then the three of them go to visit henry in the clock tower where they witness the results of henry's um experiments which is the animation of dead flesh and um we see the monster come to life and um and then havoc happens <laughs> <laughs> uh, 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 um th- uh, yeah the other stuff happens too do you want me to say more i don't I know mean, what's happening is that, <laughs> is that
0: the end of your synopsis
1: well i don't know i could carry on
0: if it was the end of your synopsis that was one minute and nine seconds okay <laughs> So, I saw you. I saw seconds. you
1: go to touch your watch. So I was like, "I need to stop talking." Oh no, no, you
0: can carry on as <laughs> no, 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 long no, no, as you no. want. But no, you, no, no, no. You would have we'll, we'll talk about right we'll talk
1: about the rest of the plot points. <laughs> I got. I, just, I found it really difficult for the first part of the film because I don't know why they did it, Ed. Because the character is Victor Frankenstein <laughs> in the book, and that yeah. is how he is known. And for some reason in this film mm-hmm. they've made him Henry Frankenstein, and his mate is called Victor.
0: Yes, yeah, I don't know it. why
1: they've done it, but I got really muddled, and for ages I was like, "Oh, hang on, is this dude Victor Frankenstein, and who's Henry?" Um, and I got all muddled.
0: Um, yeah, it's a, it's a weird one. I don't. Studios have got funny ideas about what people will and won't buy in a protagonist. I think yeah. I think that's all I can imagine. It is is. Well, he is our protagonist, so he must have a, a, a more anglicised name than, than yeah. Victor.
1: Even though it is very obviously set in Germany, you know, they're all in dirndls at the end. So it's not like they we're trying to pretend that they're not.
0: And as you say, the other chap's called Victor. So it's weird.
1: Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, Ed, I was going to say, will you take us through some housekeeping?
0: So, uh, yeah, Frankenstein, as I say, from 1931. It was premiered on November the 21st, 1931 at the Mayfair Theatre in New York City and took $53,000 in its first week it went on to take 12 million dollars off a budget of 262 thousand and seven dollars so it made its money back which is exactly what they wanted it to do uh, universal had had a little bit of trouble at the time but they had that very year 1931 had had huge success with the uh, bella lugosi starring dracula and they were like Oh, we need more of this. Quick, somebody do Frankenstein. So James Whale, well, interesting director, worked in both theatre and film. He's a British director, uh, most known for his Frankenstein movie. So Frankenstein and its sequel, Bride of Frankenstein, um, which we'll chat a little bit about later. Yeah. Uh, he also made The Invisible Man and Showboat. Interesting guy. He was openly gay throughout his career in both the theatre and in Hollywood, uh, which was unheard of in the 1920s and 1930s. People hid all of that. Um, but he was he was openly gay, and he lived with his partner, David Lewis. Uh, he had a lot of mental health issues, and he sadly committed suicide in 1957 at the age of 67. Interesting guy, worth checking out some more of his movies. As far as the writing of this goes, uh, so this as we mentioned, It's it's adapted from the novel by Mary Shelley. So it had been adapted by... The English playwright Peggy Webling, who did a play of Frankenstein, uh, which was then adapted for the American stage by John L. Baldiston. And then the screenplay for this was adapted by Garrett Fort and Francis Edward Farrago. Garrett Fort had done uh, sort of Dracula movies and Zorro movies through his career, a uh, sort of real um, studio. Writer. Instead, I come back to John L. Baldiston because he, yeah, again, he did sort of uh, Dracula and the mummy and various things like that, but he also adapted the play Gaslight, uh, yeah, from from the play uh, to the film, which gives us the term, the verb to gaslight nowadays.
1: Yeah. I I assumed it was Patrick Hamilton who did the adaptation, but no.
0: No, it wasn't. It was John L. Baldurston. The producer, Carl Lamley Jr., um, who was the head of production at Universal, uh, which was founded by his father. In his time as head of production, he produced 161 movies at Universal, and that was over a span of 13 years, uh, which is, I mean, that, that is an indication of the sort of factory that the studio system was just churning films out.
1: Well, I mean, on that, sorry to interrupt, but um, on that, I mean, I, I um, only—I just read this morning, you mentioned that Frankenstein was released in the November of 31. They only started filming it in August of 1931.
0: Dracula had been released earlier in that year and they went, oh, yeah. another one now.
1: Quick! <laughs> which, I, I mean, it's staggering, actually, when you think about it.
0: No, 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 you're absolutely right. It's astonishing. But yeah, so he uh, oversaw the universal boom in monster movies. Um, So, yeah, Dracula, The Mummy, The Invisible Man, all that sort of stuff amongst his 161 production credits there. The music by Bernhard Kaun. He's got 141 credits in film and TV as a composer. Almost none of it was credited at the time. Composer, the music department, they're all just sort of cogs in the system and sort of thought of as unimportant at the time. Cinematography by Paul Ivano and Arthur Edelson. Arthur Edelson, interesting, because uh, he was a cinemato- uh, cinematographer on Casablanca, the Maltese Falcon, and All Quiet on the Western Front, um, having started much earlier in the silent era. The editor, Clarence Colster. Actually, quite interesting one here. The art Arch- director is charles d hall he did some very interesting work in the silent era uh so he yeah the art director on uh phantom of the opera starring lon chaney silent one
1: Oh, was he which is
0: incredible uh and he was also the production designer on a couple of charlie chaplin movies actually he, he worked as an art director with chaplin as well but the more interesting mm-hmm. chaplin credits of his are um the gold rush which is my personal favorite and modern times which if you're looking for more examples of his work as an art director and as a production designer; those three movies would be mm. great examples. Uh, so yeah, Phantom of the Opera, The Gold Rush, and Modern Times. Modern Times has got some really great visuals.
1: It's amazing. The um, him going through all the cogs is yeah. one of the kind of most famous, I think, chaplain images. I think a lot of people will know that image, um, yeah. even if they've never seen a Chaplin film before.
0: I think so. Yeah, it's incredible. All that stuff. The last person I want to mention here, uh, the makeup designer. I mm. mean, ha- how how could we not mention him, uh, Jack? P. pierce incredibly influential i mean well just just look at what he created for this the that image yeah. of frankenstein's monster is the image that will pop into your head as being frankenstein's monster the bolts in the neck the scar across the top of the head however many times it's been adapted and redesigned however many times uh, we get different frankenstein's monsters and different versions of it that is the version that entered the zeitgeist so he did that iconic work um, but he also created the makeup for Bela Lugosi's Dracula, uh, The Wolfman as well which came out uh, somewhat later back in the, in the 40s. Um, but my personal favourite of his work is on the man who laughs
1: oh my god it's incredible yeah
0: isn't it just
1: that makeup effect is so frightening and talk about um a person who has created makeup effects and enter the zeitgeist if you look at an image of the man who laughs and don't see the joker i don't know what (laughs) image you're looking at (laughs) it's It's amazing
0: yeah it's been openly acknowledged for years that, that that design for the man who laughs influenced the design of the joker Um, absolutely yeah it's just just incredible stuff yes just to run through the cast quite quickly we've got colin clive plays henry frankenstein Mae clark as elizabeth john Bowles as victor moritz edwin van sloan as dr waldman frederick kerr as baron frankenstein dwight fry dwight fry had a great sort of line in these horror movie weirdos he was terrific yeah. um in this he plays fritz or who i've taken to calling fritz the shit because what a bastard <laughs> he's the worst <laughs> he's the worst uh, we've also got lionel belmore as the burgomaster which uh, i've learned is a, uh, a mayor in sort of central europe um we've got marilyn harris as young maria and finally of course boris Karloff. As the monster
1: talk about you were talking before about the mu- uh, the music being uncredited. I was really shocked. Um, when I first saw this, to see mm. that the monster—it isn't even that the monster doesn't appear in the opening credits. It's that the monster appears in the opening credits with a question, with a mark. question mark. I
0: love that. Yeah, he's properly oh. credited at the end of the movie. But yeah, yeah. But in those opening credits, it's he's just he's just a monster. And what is he? I what love is that.
1: it? Not even a human could no. be anything. Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> I'd like to just chat a little bit about how the censors felt about this film at the time because it's really interesting.
1: Oh, it, this is such a fascinating period of time for cinema yeah, yeah.
0: so it's a sort of pre-code state censor boards around the united states all have sort of different powers and different things they want uh, so massachusetts pennsylvania and new york they really didn't like uh the the drowning scene and they really didn't like the uh, little exchange henry in the name of god in the name of god now i know what it feels like to be god they didn't like that one little bit that was blasphemous um so i think that got lost and and um, the drowning scene we'll come on to later mm. but that for a long time was cut in half. Um, Well,
1: um, I think the, the footage that you now, so when you watch Frankenstein now, you see the whole scene, but that footage of The Drowning Mm. was only rediscovered in the 80s, Yeah, which is uh, astonishing. Yeah, it was
0: a a BFI edit or something, I think. Yeah, so uh, other other couple of interesting ones. Uh, The state of Kansas, the census there, wanted 32 scenes cut from the film and it would have resulted in literally half of the film being cut out. I
1: think that's amazing.
0: (laughs) The film was banned outright in uh, what was then called the Irish Free State as demoralising and unsuitable for children or nervous people. Unless they... (laughs) (laughs) He's <laughs> So that's so funny. It is I really funny. Um, and the the other one that I really like, it was banned in China as a superstitious film due to its strangeness and unscientific elements. Mm. Mm. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting how we've moved on because I wouldn't have a problem showing this movie to anybody over the age of about eight. Well, yeah, I think I think that's probably the age I was when I first saw it. I mean, uh, to look at pre code movies,
1: tell us they are so tame. It's it's really difficult to imagine that these might have been films that scandalised. But when Frankenstein came out, even with the edits that were were requested by specific states, it was a scandalous film and it was a shocking film.
0: So you'd seen the film before, hadn't you?
1: I had seen the film before, yeah. Do you Um, remember when you first saw it? Um, it wasn't that long ago. It wasn't a film like you were saying that you saw it when you were quite little. Yeah. I think I probably saw it first when I was at university. Um, and then I have seen it again since. Mm. Um I am very familiar with a lot of what happens in the book, but I haven't actually read the book myself. You saw it quite when you were quite little. Yeah,
0: I reckon I was probably about seven or eight. Um, when my dad showed me uh, both Frankenstein and the Bride of Frankenstein. He also showed me the Brides of Dracula as well.
1: Oh, that's great.
0: Because um, I, I, I don't know, I, I loved monsters anyway. Yeah, little boy, like anything sort of gruesome was up my street. So yeah, Frankenstein was something I definitely want to see. So yeah, he showed me Frankenstein and the Bride of Frankenstein, both of which are brilliant, and I'm a little bit sad that I didn't insist on doing a double bill for this episode. I know, yeah.
1: (laughs) I mean, which actually there would have been time.
0: There there would have been time, because they're both quite short. Well, we'll come on to it, but I, I, I feel like the film sort of feels unfinished, knowing what happens in The Bride of yes. Frankenstein, it feels unfinished.
1: Well, also, I mean, knowing that I kind of that what happens in The Bride of Frankenstein is actually kind of um, closer to what happens in the novel of Frankenstein mm. than the 1931 film of Frankenstein. You know, you were saying before how the film is kind of, it was the book and then it was the adaptation which was a play Mm -hmm. and then there was the american adaptation of the british play Mm -hmm. and then there was the screenplay adaptation of the play of the play of the book and it's like yeah it is there's like a chinese whispers effect where Mm. actually the film frankenstein from 1931 bears little resemblance to frankenstein by mary shelley um so it it really is very much a suggested by rather than based on i would say yes quite Um, possibly and yeah, um, like you said, the zeitgeist, uh, particularly those makeup effects, but I think this film is absolutely the basis for what most people understand about Frankenstein nowadays, Yeah, is much more definitive than the novel.
0: Yeah, I would say so. I, the novel surprised me. I, I have read, I read it. I read it a few years ago.
1: What did you make of it?
0: I... Didn't enjoy it very much, if I'm honest. It's quite dry. It is quite dry. It's not. It's not as dry as *The Phantom of the Opera*, which remains oh the most God. turgid book I've ever read in my life. Um, but
1: turgid yet batshit. I was like, <laughs>
0: hang on. <laughs>
1: It's very dull. But then there's this yeah. whole bit where the, where Rowell's going wandering around in the battle. Hang the on. Air. He's in a de- he's yeah with his hand in the air. And it's like, "Hang on, he's in a desert room." And now he's yeah. in a room made of mirrors. And it's like, "What is happening?" Yeah, it
0: suddenly goes bonkers, doesn't it, at the end. Um, but yeah. How
1: did Andrew Lloyd Webber make a a better version of that story? <laughs> I don't know.
0: Well, I think I think I think there is a, a story to be mined out of it. It's just yeah, it's it's all in the telling. Um, yeah. 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 But yeah
1: yeah no but Frankenstein the novel
0: Frankenstein is yeah it's dry and also so it's it's narrated by both uh, Victor Frankenstein and the monster and I find Victor Frankenstein unbearable I find him an unbearable narrator because he just won't shut up about his guilt for what he's inflicted on the world, and it it makes for really unsatisfying narrative. Um, Well, I think
1: as well because it's got not only so it's narrated by both, but also it has the framing device of the um, the Arctic exploration. Oh yeah, of course. So it's it's all told. So all of the um, Victor Frankenstein and the monster stuff is told from the point of view of a person who's interviewing Dr. Frankenstein on a ship and so it's kind of got this like third degree, three degrees of separation from the actual story which is very kind of of the period, like, let's keep it very separate from ourselves, please. Yeah. It's much less kind of visceral and whereas I think the film mm. is so it's immediate, although it does have the introduction, which I think is very interesting, mm. which maybe we'll come on to. We
0: shall. We shall. The, the other thing, the thing that actually surprised me most about the novel is actually the, the sections that are narrated by the monster because he's so verbal. He's so like <laughs> articulate articulate, and uh, yeah, he has philosophical the, the power of thought, and yeah, philosophical. and so that surprised me quite a lot, yeah um, because yeah, the image I had was Boris Karloff going, <laughs> making those inhuman noises and getting confused quite easily and scared. Uh,
1: the kind of childlike innocence, whereas um the creature in the book is a is a man. It's much more, the book is much more a kind of philosophical discussion over the nature of humanity um, and that kind of core question of um, kind of man versus monster, creator versus creator creation all of that stuff whereas the film is a monster movie yeah, <laughs> with, sure. with a lot of other a lot of other subtext going on as well but it's much 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 more stripped back paired back
0: yeah if i if only we had time to discuss the uh, romantic movement in literature um and, and it's it's <laughs> for, uh, for philosophy and over philosophizing um <laughs> it's time for the educational
1: portion of the podcast children
0: <laughs> <laughs> shall we chat about the movie itself i think i probably know the answer to this but um do you like it
1: i do excellent i think it's great uh it made me cry again
0: wonderful <laughs> and you know how
1: i don't like to feel my feelings ed, i know. but i find it really i find it's very 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 moving and then um, much like the novel i think that this film is probably quite misunderstood i think that people see those images of the monster and think that they know what this film is and it really isn't it really is that no. at all what about you i'm, I'm assuming you yeah love it. i love
0: it i think i think it's brilliant I think it's a masterful, masterful piece of filmmaking. And it's it's so it's so human because the uh, the, the character that is billed as the monster is not nearly as monstrous as some of the other characters.
1: I, I think he is absolutely by far the most sympathetic character in the whole film. Oh, 100%. And that's what makes me cry. The The treatment of him makes me cry. I mean, do you think that that was the takeaway of audiences at the time?
0: Yeah, I would think so. You know, a- outside of cowering behind their hands. Because the, 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 the monster doesn't really do anything wrong.
1: No, at no like, point.
0: He kills three people. Two of those are justifiable homicides, I would say i would i would agree Um, and the the and the 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 third is a a tragic accident based on naivety and not knowing what happens when you throw things in water
1: although bearing in mind audiences at the time wouldn't have seen that so they would only have seen the two justifiable homicides (laughs) yeah
0: yeah that's true um i've got i've got a theory about what this film is about.
1: I am mad keen to hear that theory.
0: So I think that this film is uh, sort of on a kind of Oedipal kind of way. It is about... The desire to destroy one's father
1: I love this Ed, tell me more
0: (laughs) So, Henry Frankenstein What what do you think drives Henry Frankenstein? For me, I think he's driven by a desire To destroy that fucking awful Obnoxious, terrible father Baron Frankenstein He wants to destroy him He can't really destroy him So he's got a surrogate father figure In Dr. Vodman Who taught him everything at the university And then rejected him uh, Kicked him out because of As you say, the dangerous experiments As he covered in the synopsis and so from then, he's driven by a desire to destroy his surrogate father, Dr. Voldemort. But like, Well, you've, you've got that great scene where he's like, I, I can show you that you're wrong. You're completely wrong. And you, uh, have it.
1: Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah.
0: And he, yeah, tears down this man who was a a, a sort of father figure in his life in place of his actual father who he can't do anything to tear Mm. down because he's a baron and that is where his inheritance is and that's where, you know, Mm. everything is. We then have him creating life. He is the father of the monster. It is Frankenstein's monster, who is similarly mistreated by mm. the father, Henry Frankenstein, and also Dr. Waldman and Fritz the ship, who then sets about trying to destroy his father, Henry Frankenstein. It's a cycle of trying to destroy your father. And then when we come to the scene where crashes the wedding, I'll be interested to know what you think the monster mm. is after. Because mm-hmm. if I took it down a real Oedipal route, we'd be looking at Elizabeth as a kind of surrogate mother Figure. And he turns up in her bedroom while she's uh, getting ready for the wedding, and scares her after death. But I don't think he's there to kill her. She's done nothing to him. I think he's, I think he's uh, attracted to her sexually.
1: Yes, yes. So
0: we've got a full sort of Oedipal thing going on here, and that is my theory of the movie Frankenstein.
1: I love it, Ed. <laughs> I absolutely love it. I totally see where you're coming from. I hadn't kind of made the connection with um, Frankenstein, feeling that the doctor is a kind of. Um, Surrogate father figure. I
0: think it's it's more of a sort of uh, intellectual dominance, an intellectual tearing down of that surrogate father.
1: Yeah, it's a contempt for the authority over over him into like his professionally and all that kind of thing. I'm going to get super specific here, Ed. Cool. Hope that's okay. You've just made me think of the tarot card, the moon. <laughs> OK, basically, it's you've got the moon in the image, but then beneath the moon on the ground, you've got a wolf and a dog. And then beneath them, you have a crayfish coming out of the water. The um the wolf and the dog and the crayfish kind of together. They're sort of representative of the human subconscious and the battle between our kind of um, carnal Base animalistic self mm-hmm. and our domesticated, tame, societally acceptable self, and all of those things coming together in harmony in the subconscious. So huh. when I was watching the film, I did think like, oh well, maybe the monster and Frankenstein are kind of two sides of the same coin, and it's um, it's Frankenstein trying to find an outlet for his kind of carnal desire. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, update, and I know Bride of Frankenstein is much more red with queer theory in mind, but I do think that um, Frankenstein, this one, does. have... Have an enormous amount of queer subtext and I think that um, Henry Frankenstein is coded um, as a gay character and I do think and I think that the his relationship with Elizabeth is really interesting mm-hmm. but his desire to have created something monstrous well he doesn't want to create something monstrous he wants to create life but I wonder if there's also a kind of wanting to live vicariously through this creation because mm-hmm. it's like that's his outlet for his frustration because he is different he is other, yeah, and he creates the other, and the the monster in Frankenstein is absolutely a kind of queer icon because of the the otherness of it and the way that in the film it is persecuted for its difference and its otherness without actually doing anything wrong, mm. and exactly like you say, um, is kind of the ultimate victim in the film. So there's all of that going on as well. So I think I I there is some theory in there about the moon, <laughs> the moon and a crayfish and <laughs> uh, otherness and the monster and all of that stuff too yeah that's
0: <laughs> That's all really fascinating. Um, I'd, yeah, I'd love to know more about uh, Henry Frankenstein being coded as queer because that makes sense yeah. to me in light of what we know about James Whale and uh, his life. Yes,
1: I think that the, the queer coding in the film in Frankenstein itself it's very subtle, but there's some there's moments where he recoils from Elizabeth, but there's also moments between him and Victor where I'm like, oh, this is there is a connection here that is that is more than... And yeah. kind of platonic the way that he just doesn't seem to give a fuck about the fact that his like love rival is hanging out with his fiance all the time and then becomes his best man and in later in the film he says to elizabeth over and over and over again she says to him like i love you and i can't bear to think that i would lose you again and he just says how beautiful you are how beautiful <laughs> you are how beautiful you are
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah it's interesting you mentioned that cuz i i sort of had a read on victor as as being gay. Yeah, I'm with you. Cool.
1: I love your theory about about the father thing. I think I'd sort of thought of the father figure as being just kind of like an incidental posho who I had to sort of endure (laughs) the scenes with. So I'm really glad to hear that you've like read into it and I do think it's extremely interesting that the very last line in the film is that repetition that the father has about like and here's to a Frankenstein's son. Yeah. I mean again this kind of coming back into the idea of maybe Henry being queer coded. His father has a set idea for what the future of his son looks like and the kind of carrying on of the Frankenstein legacy yeah. and it is a completely heteronormative marrying a woman and having a male child. Mm-hmm. It is not the creation of your kind of own family unit and the creation of your own way of life and your own choices. And we don't get to hear from Henry at the end. No. We don't get to hear from Elizabeth at the end. We don't get to hear how they feel about what's happened. Frankenstein doesn't want to destroy his creation. No. At no point does he want to destroy his creation. He may sort of say to everybody else that that's what needs to happen, Mm -hmm. but he is very much leading the pursuit At the end so that he can get to the creature first and so that he can be with his creature. And it's like Frankenstein is choosing a a different life and he has a different set of values Mm -hmm. to the status quo and the norm. And the father is representative of that. It's such a devastating story at the end because the status quo has
0: won. Yeah, at least. Until the sequel, um, yeah, which goes to some <laughs> other places. Yeah, I don't, I don't think I don't think I've seen Bride of Frankenstein since I, uh, that initial viewing when I was seven or eight. So I, my my memory of it is very hazy.
1: That in, that incredible bride reveal is so iconic and so yeah,
0: she's an iconic creation. As well.
1: that sort of dominates. And um, what Fritz the shit? Mm. The same actor is there again, but it's as a different character. Different yeah. character, yeah.
0: Yeah, as I say, he had. Uh, A whole line of creeps and weirdos and whatnot in horror movies. He died quite young. He was in his 40s when he died.
1: Oh, was he really? Um, Gosh. Should we talk about the monster? Yeah, okay. Boris Karloff. I
0: think he's extraordinary in this. Yeah, he is. People harp on about sort of how many lines an actor has in a movie, how much they have to say. You don't have to say anything to make an enormous impact. It is a brilliant non-verbal performance. It's extraordinary. He, he he breaks your heart repeatedly in this movie. And he is terrifying and imposing as well. Um, he is dangerous, while at the same time being a child. It's, it's extraordinary. There's a reason that this version of the monster is so iconic. It's partly to do with just the sheer... Look of Boris Karloff anyway, that sort of physical size and shape of him, but also the performance, the humanity that he he imbues this monster with, the sort of empathy in his performance is extraordinary.
1: When we first meet him properly, the way that he reaches for the light, it, it makes my heart hurt just thinking about it. And actually, I know this sounds like a really weird thing to focus on, but I was really noticed this time through what he does with his hands. Mm. It's some of the most extraordinary hand acting. It really is. He conveys such a gentleness and such a, a f- he's so fragile and naive and kind of gentle but also pleading his hands are always reaching out for someone to help him
0: yeah he's always either reaching out for for someone to help him or in in the case of this scene for the, the the warmth of the sun on his mm. hands to feel it and as you say yeah he's that that such sort of gentle hands and that fragility mm. which then in a subsequent Scene where he kills Doctor Waldman. Fabulous hand Ooh. acting there as well. The, the the sheer power in those hands as he grips the doctor round the throat. Mm. Um, yeah, it, you you absolutely believe that that is a grip that will mm. never be broken. As actors, we often sort of neglect our hands and what we do with our mm-hmm. hands uh, Boris Karloff what a master
1: talk about embodying a character from the tips of your toes to the tips of your fingers to the top of your head he was relatively unknown wasn't he Boris Karloff yeah, when he so. made this
0: they, they offered it to Bella Lugosi originally but he, he, he turned it down because he wanted to play um, Henry
1: I'm really glad he didn't though because I do think what's his name Henry Frankenstein oh, what's uh, the actor called Clive Colin, Colin Clive he's amazing yeah he's terrific James Whale brought him along for the cinematic run. Having worked with him in um on stage. Colin Clive was one of the actors who worked on Journey's End right from the very, very beginning. Yeah. Um when it was like in development as a play and then all the way through. Cause I don't know, did you read this? James Whale was um in the First World War, he was taken captive, but he was an officer, so he was relatively well treated. And get this, it was while he was a prisoner of war that he got the drama bug. Oh well. <laughs> because he he directed, produced, and starred in loads of amateur productions in the POW camp.
0: How fascinating.
1: The war is really important as well. I'm going to wang on here, Rad. I'm so sorry. (laughs) I'm taking us way over the thing. You're
0: the one who's going to edit it, so, uh, you know.
1: (laughs) I'd like to talk a little bit about the look of the film because Uh obviously the look of the monster is very very important in this as well. One of the main influences on film right from the very sort of dawn of of cinema, particularly horror cinema, is German expressionism. The most obvious example of German expressionism is in the film The Cabinet of Dr. Callaghan Uh which I mean even if you've not seen it look up images and that is German Expressionism that is what that looks like and the whole point of German Expressionism it arose out of the kind of trauma of the First World War and there was a real turn from the, uh, from artists away from depicting real imagery and more towards depicting the emotions of a person or a scene. So German Expressionism, in terms of design, is all about depicting a mood or a feeling. And while the Cabinet of Dr. Caligari is much more kind of overtly this, Metropolis also ex- has exactly the same thing going on in it. But the the surroundings, those painted backdrops, these incredible sets, but also the incredible makeup on the performers is all about conveying this feeling of the gothic yeah. and Frankenstein has this in buckets i really noticed it in that first scene you know the the graveyard scene where it's all angles
0: it's extraordinary, is at an extraordinary it? angle. Everything is at an angle. All of the graves are at angles. All the yeah. gravestones. There's a skeleton there as well that's sort of at a weird angle. There's those railings that they're hiding behind as well, they're all at a weird, jaunty angle.
1: And... They're all on a wonk. And that is completely German Expressionist. But even like when you get into the clock tower that the laboratory's in and you've got the dungeon and like you, the way that he places characters right down at the bottom so that you can see the kind of great expanse of the wall going up and the shadows that are cast. Are against the wall and every single thing in the design of this is really specifically placed to give you a feeling of unease, mm. of the world being slightly askew, yeah. of everything being slightly like upside down and topsy-turvy and like you you can't be certain of your footing at any point. Mm-hmm. But, like those steps that lead down to the dungeon are all wonky. It's like at any moment you could just lose your feet and slip down and that's how the whole film makes you feel is this like... I can't trust what's going to happen to me (laughs) in this film.
0: But I think, I think it's really interesting sort of design thing to talk about in that sort of that first sort of Mm. that first movement of the film where they're collecting the body parts, because as you say, there's that scene at the, At the grave where everything is on a wonk, Um, the gravestones, and they take the coffin out and that all comes out. And then they're looking for a brain. They're taking taking the coffin away. Mm. They've got a body. They need a brain for it. Interestingly, I don't know what you make of this. The first object uh, in the design of it that is on a straight vertical line is the gallows pole.
1: I love that.
0: I don't know what to read into that, but... I just thought it was interesting and worth mentioning.
1: Death is the only thing you can rely on in this world. Death is the only constant. Except that is exactly what the film is about to disprove.
0: Does it disprove it? Or, or does it warn you of the dangers of trying to disprove it?
1: Oh. Yeah, maybe that. The importance that. of
0: things being dead, I think, is quite central.
1: Uh, death comes for us all. Death is the only constant. Even though you think that maybe um, you know Victor Frankenstein is about to completely subvert that, maybe it's about the fact that it will come for you in the end.
0: When it's a it's a spoiler for the Bride of Frankenstein, but at the end, when the monster finally speaks, he says, "I belong dead." Yes. And then the the body that's hanging from the gallows pole is uh, not usable. The brain is too mm. too fucked. So then they go to the university. Where everything is a lot more orderly in that lecture hall. There's a lot more sort of straight lines in that design. It's a, it's brighter as well. There's not so much shadow. There's still a skeleton there, <laughs> so it's still macabre, but it's a, it's a much it's a cleaner it's a clean white skeleton as opposed to that dark, dirty skeleton in shadow that we saw uh, at the graveyard. It's yeah, it's sort of clean, mm. scientific. As you know, I was in Edinburgh last week, yes. uh, and we went to surgeons' halls.
1: I have to go. Oh, my-
0: god it's it's really it's fascinating and it's a really difficult thing to walk around uh, because they've got the museum of pathology which is just rows and rows and rows of specimen jars with human body parts and various things and it it's absolutely fascinating but it's so unsettling and you have this sort of disconnect between sterile clean environment of science and what you know to be a part of a human being um that Mm. i think is what we get in this scene with the brains being examined and it's one of my favourite things in the world the difference between a normal brain and a criminal brain it's wonderful
1: <laughs> it's like they've got two great big red buttons and it's yeah. one says do not push and the other says push and it's yeah. like anyway it's just been written on <laughs> abnormal brain <laughs>
0: yeah and then of course uh, Fritz the shit who I think is probably the best time to come on to him isn't it
1: oh yeah yeah
0: because he sneaks in to steal the brain he steals the right brain then drops it and yeah. he's like oh god alright whatever I'll take that one instead just
1: a little later back to the previous film, this absolute um, lack of respect Mm. shown for the kind of the responsibility you bear during the kind of scientific process. It's like, you know, he doesn't give a fuck which brain he takes. It doesn't really matter to him. I mean, he's such a twat. Fritz (laughs) the shit. I am quite sad that we don't get to see him die.
0: (laughs) Yeah. When he dies, I don't fully understand what exactly has happened to him. I don't fully understand what the process has been. He's hanging up. He's done a lot of screaming, but I don't know what he's dangling from, and I don't know exactly how he's been...
1: I think that... Uh, what well, I thought the, the implication was that he'd been hung.
0: But I, I, I struggle in my head with the mechanics of how that happens between him and the monster.
1: The monster surely is able to just physically overpower him. So, yeah, well, that, you're right. It, that doesn't entirely make sense. No,
0: I, Yeah, I, don't, I, don't, I quite like that I don't understand it, because it, it sort of adds an extra layer of... From a sort of pure horror standpoint, it is often better to not fully know, you know what I mean? Because you, your imagination just does the work for you.
1: What What we picture in our head is always so much worse than whatever they could pick on put on screen, especially because it's so personal. You've Mm. you've started calling him Fritz the shit. Um, Can you tell us why? (laughs) (laughs) Because you felt it necessary.
0: (laughs) I, I I think he's a repulsive little shit. Like he's like. Frankenstein is driven by Well the, the things that we've discussed I think But he doesn't want to sort of do any harm To anybody he wants to create you know what I mean um, And the fact that his monster does Do physical harm to people tears him apart Fritz wants to watch the world burn I'm sure <laughs> of that he's getting off On it every moment of the way he The, the grave robbery just the, that when you first When yeah. you first meet them hiding behind that Railing in the graveyard just the Look in Fritz's eyes he's mm. like Oh there's a dead body over there And we're gonna go get it and oh
1: yeah <laughs> <laughs> do you think though that there is a I, i've I've taken your mm. father eatable complex thing and yeah. I'm gonna run with it. Okay. Ed. Good. Is there an element of this which is about a cycle of abuse? Yes. But also class because Henry (laughs) Frankenstein is part of a cycle of abuse. However, he is also endowed with privilege being a man Mm -hmm. and being a wealthy man. Mm -hmm. The impact of the cycle of abuse on him is that he wants to tear down the kind of patriarchal structure so that he can take his father's place or whatever. Yeah however if you are not endowed with power or privilege and in this case actually by virtue of your physical appearance because it's really important to remember that Fritz the shit, he is not a traditionally or typically able-bodied person. And and as a result of that, he is of a lower status. He is all of this stuff. And potentially through years of of being treated a certain way, exactly, he has learned behavior that 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 monster is a monster. So I need to treat it by shoving fire in its Mm. face and taunting it and being awful to it because that's what's been done to him. And then the monster learns that behavior because it's what happens to him. And then he behaves exactly the same way in defense, but also in anger. Mm-hmm. And is that the same anger that Fritz carries? And is that is that part of a completely separate wheel yeah, <laughs> that's possibly. going round and round?
0: Quite you know? possibly. Um, yeah, I think I think there's a lot to that. As as far as Fritz being, he is sort of quite physically able. He's very physically oh, capable. yeah, the, yeah. The way yeah. he gets up that gallows pole to cut the body down, the way he sort of sneaks through that window, he he he's yeah he's he's quite sort of agile.
1: I mean, he's physically he's different.
0: physically different. Yes,
1: he you. is physically other. That and you know, Frankenstein is he's passing. Because he's attractive and and you know rich and white yeah. and all of that stuff. Um, whereas the other ones, their otherness is manifested externally, and they are punished for yeah.
0: it. I agree with you. I think you're absolutely right I however will continue to call him Fritz the shit because he's a shit it's that that where, where, where he particularly crossed the line is actually it's, it's his final appearance on screen alive. he's going kind of, the monster's chained up yeah Fritz comes in and starts whipping him to be quiet whipping him whipping him and then Frankenstein comes in and wrestles the whip off him and he goes back up the stairs like oh just leave him alone Fritz just leave it alone but then he gets the fire and goes at him again he goes at the goes at the monster again um, uh, just for the sake of tormenting him he d- really deserves his fate
1: yep absolutely does deserve his fate. Like you said um you said a few episodes ago, um is there a greater motivator than revenge?
0: Well, indeed. I'm not sure there is. Is there a greater sort of yeah. driver of a narrative or plot than revenge? I don't know. Um yeah, please do email us if you can think of any.
1: And don't say love. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I think I think I think love is uh it's a difficult concept to be a, a real strong motivator. It's too woolly. Uh, yeah. It's too woolly. It's far too woolly. Um, Revenge is nice and pure. <laughs> Yeah, the other thing that I was thinking of, uh, again, because I was in Edinburgh last year, was yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, on a sort of grave robbing perspective, That was the, that's the land of Burke and Hare as well. Um, tell us a bit about that. Oh, well, I don't know much about the story of Burke and Hare but there were a couple of ne'er-do-wells who they started off, uh, robbing graves in and around Edinburgh uh, to sell the bodies for medical research, uh, and they eventually graduated to murder. And actually, um, in the uh, Surgeons' Halls, there is a little display about Burke and and I can't remember. I think it, I think it's Burke after he was hanged. So uh, they've got they've got his death mask there, um, <laughs> where you can see you can see the the ligature mark on the neck where the <gasps> where the noose. Also, more macabre than that is a little notebook that is bound in his tanned skin yeah
1: oh man that's so dark
0: isn't it just isn't it just (laughs) and that that is the sort of world that we're inhabiting in this movie I think
1: what's really interesting is that all this stuff about grave robbing is very of the time that Mary Shelley wrote the book this film 1931 is contemporary it's set in the 30s it isn't they're not it's not in the past so actually the the concept of grave robbing is kind of a it's a thing of antiquity Mm. interestingly um grave robbers were Called Resurrection Men. That was one. Oh, is of that their. right? I didn't know that. But it was very much the. So I mean, the reason people went grave robbing is because around this time, hmm. so sort of the early 19th century, there was a big boom in medicine, particularly anatomical medicine and sort of discoveries about the human body and how the human body worked. Right. This was extremely controversial because. For the general populace, the idea that a person would desecrate a corpse mm-hmm. in order to advance medical science, like that was just like a not, that is not cool. No. So the advances in medicine it was this thing about like, yes, this is really positive, but you're getting these results by doing something that is completely abhorrent, Mm -hmm. which is why there was this kind of um, dark edge to it, which was, you know, they couldn't get human bodies to experiment on. So they had to rely on grave robbers because that was the only way they were going to get specimens. That was the only way they were going to be able to do these autopsies. Then, you know, obviously great leaps and bounds come as a result of that. And medicine becomes much more sophisticated, Mm -hmm. all of that kind of stuff. So there's this kind of, Exactly like you say, there is this clinical, clean, legitimate sort of medical side, and then there's this grubby, dirty grave robby, books bound in human skin, like bleh, <laughs> stuff, and it to- it feeds into the stuff like the kind of um, very Victorian, actually, um, kind of fascination with death. Um, and the afterlife, gothic fiction, yeah. a preoccupation with hauntings and contacting the afterlife and occultism and all of this stuff. It all starts to come to the fore during the Victorian age and during this time period. And then this film comes in the 30s and it's sort of harking back to that. But mm. it's got a modern edge to it as well, which is really interesting. Obviously, this is, uh, Frankenstein's a very early film. And of course, one, one of the most important influences on Hollywood was the American Carnival and the idea of freak shows. Yeah. Another really important film from this time period is it the same year?
0: Uh, he, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, already. presumably you're about Todd Browning's Freaks. Yes, I am. Which I is it the same it was year? was around the same. It's certainly around the same time. Hold on.
1: I read a really interesting thing. Actually, they were talking about how the kind of universal horror mon- horror movies, like monster movies, um, of this period can kind of fall into two categories. There's either kind of the, a collection of monsters rising up against a central protagonist or a singular monster being defeated by a kind of collective of humans of which Frankenstein is the kind of most obvious example of the latter and then Freaks is the former. Uh, yeah, have you seen Freaks? I have seen Freaks. Yeah, it's,
0: it, it's just as sympathetic in its portrayal of the other as Frankenstein yeah. is. Yeah, uh, It's from Absolutely. 1932, by the way.
1: 1932. So yeah, around this time, like we were talking there about kind of anatomy and medical advancements, but there is also this weird fascination with the other, like human bodies mm are so central in this time period. And when I say this time period, what time period am I talking about there? Because I'm talking like early 1800s all the way through to <laughs> 1930s. But like this kind of preoccupation with the human body and our kind of closeness to death. Because in a lot of ways, back in the early 1800s when this book was written, we were much closer to death. And yet we were so far removed from the functions of the human body. And it's kind of this weird coming together of the of this extremely common normal normal part of life accepted thing Mm. and this like totally alien idea of our like a fear of our own bodies and the monster kind of being where those two things collide
0: shall we chat about reanimating the corpse Yeah, the creation the moment of creation of frankenstein's monster What I love most about this scene is the sound of it, like that constant thunder, the shrieking, and the-,
1: the incredible, like the power of nature and the lightning and the thunder and the rain battling against this. The sound of industry, yes, the me- the metal clanking and the the whirring and the shouting of them down in the laboratory.
0: Yeah you're absolutely right it's, it's, that, it's that central conflict between nature and science and science's attempts to control nature and nature's sort of refusal to be controlled um, which I guess is kind of the point
1: point. One of the things I love about that scene as well is that we, we don't go outside with the monster, we don't go outside with the body we stay down in the lab mm-hmm. with the anticipation of whether it's working and also this kind of like you don't get to know what's going on up there you don't get to know about this process because it's like, well it's it's too close to godliness. Mm-hmm. It's forbidden information, it's forbidden knowledge. We get to see the results, but we don't get to know how it actually happens. All we know is that lightning is involved, maybe
0: Yeah, <laughs> 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 yeah but presumably, presumably that's why it gets winched up there is because it needs to harness the needs to harness yeah. the power of nature. Ooh. Mm. And then yeah, the the famous line that got, got them in trouble about now I know how, how it feels to be God. So yeah, we've got Fritz, who very clearly crossed the line and uh, deserved his death. Then we've got uh, Doctor Waldman, who gonna he's gonna open up the creature while it's still alive, and yeah, do all that. So yeah, he deserves his death as well. But then you've got little Maria, who absolutely doesn't deserve her death. All she does wrong is show the creature kindness, and he's never experienced that, and he's so happy. It's it's really it's a really beautiful scene. It's when after he has escaped from the lab, having killed Dr. Waldman, comes through some bushes and encounters a little girl who is the first person he has ever met in his short life who not only treats him with kindness, but actually just doesn't show any fear or animosity towards him.
1: It is upsetting and it's kind of, especially because, you know, that sort of imagery of the, the creature constantly reaching out his mm. hands for someone to take his hands and she is the only one who ever takes his hand and guides him in a language he understands with physical touch, rather than then barked instructions it's a, a tragic kind of misunderstanding and i can see why this was considered too much mm-hmm. by the censors at the time what do you what do you think you would make of the version of the film that doesn't contain this scene
0: it's one of the scenes that lingered most strongly in my memory from my first viewing of it back when I was little. Um, It stuck in my memory more than anything else that we've discussed so far, actually, including Mm. the famous um, reanimation. Without The Drowning, I think the film has a much diminished... Emotional impact on me. You need to see the monster happy, then you need to see him ruin it. It's yeah. it's important, I think. It um,
1: kind of gives you a glimpse of a potential version of the the creature's future, where there is happiness, there, and 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 where he can coexist. And you have to have that, otherwise you otherwise the ending where he dies that doesn't feel quite so tragic. It feels more like a kind of natural conclusion, and everything that leads up to that feels like a kind of natural decline. Um, um, towards an inevitable conclusion but mm-hmm. you have to have that scene otherwise you don't get to kind of hope against that inevitable conclusion you don't get to hope that there's a way out of those rocks <laughs> yes
0: yeah yeah absolutely it's also it's it's also it's an incredibly human thing it's a very human moment that he has because we've all done something we've all had a moment in our life where something decision we've made in the spur of the moment has gone catastrophically wrong and you can't take it back and you just you want to take it back you can't take it back and Mm. I think I think that moment is the moment that I have the strongest empathy with the creature Yes
1: I guess it's it's a really important moment in the film as well because it's the first moment when we see the monster have a human response as opposed to just a kind of animalistic response because yeah. what we've seen him be so far is afraid mm-hmm. or angry or yeah. they're all kind of what separates us from the animals so it proves in that moment that he is capable of kind of human compassion human thought human desire human kind of reasoning but of course because in that moment he is utterly alone no one gets to witness that and it's that if his creator was able to stay with him and witness this progression then there would be hope but because he's completely alone and actually being entirely alone and isolated is exactly how you feel in those moments exactly like you said when you have done something that you're just like ah no you want to like do an etch-a-sketch like erasal of the moment you're like yeah. no take it back <laughs> um, and you can't take it back yeah. and it's a really isolating feeling it feel it's really um, upsetting for those reasons as well so yeah totally with you that moment is so important and I think that the version of the film that doesn't have that scene in is a much more kind of paint by numbers monster gets worse because there's a bit of me that thought when you see the monster 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 arrive in the in the bedroom and there's that kind of moment where she she doesn't notice he he, she doesn't even notice he's come into the room and she's sort of wandering around not seeing him there is a moment where i was like god do you know she could just in this moment show some compassion she could reach out her hand and be kind. Mm-hmm. Um, and she doesn't and pays the consequences. But you were saying that you've got a theory about this moment.
0: Oh, well, it's sort of what I was covering earlier with the with mm. my Oedipal theory. I think he's there, not after her, to kill her. Well, um, he doesn't kill her. He doesn't kill her, no, exactly. Uh, she she faints and he sort of leaves her there on the bed. Um, mm. If Your imagination does some work about how that scene unfolded. I, I think it's entirely plausible that she fainted and either he caught her and put her gently on the bed but i do also think
1: that there's a she is lying prone on a bed in a and and it could very much look like an assault has taken place yes now i don't know if i'm right about this but certainly in the play that the national did with um Snatch and um uh, johnny, johnny lee, lee miller, miller yeah. in that the the creature does rape and then kill elizabeth
0: interesting i can't remember from the book yeah i think i think that's yeah i think that probably is the case
1: there's no way that it will be explicitly said it might be inferred
0: so yeah i reckon uh, it's probably about time to move on to the denouement unless you wanted to talk about victor and elizabeth
1: well no i just i mean the only thing is in the first scene with them victor is like you should marry me instead and she's like oh victor yes like, okay okay actually
0: <laughs> what, what i did want to say actually I, <laughs> is um yeah during the uh, reanimation scene when the three of them are sitting there victor is looking at henry frankenstein and he's just got fuck you face on him the mm. whole time he's just like this guy what a piece of shit <laughs>
1: you meant fuck you as in like no 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 fuck you i want to i want to fuck 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 fucking mean, you,
0: may, you. Maybe, maybe maybe there's a bit of that as well there's like the, the two things are not necessarily uh, mutually exclusive uh, oh man. Um, i
1: for me the one of the most kind of haunting images in the film is the um the father carrying the body of maria down oh, through God, the yeah. streets this kind and also this sort of sense of community that is around that whole moment. Everyone knows each other. You can see how in a tight knit community like that, a kind of mob mentality would erupt so quickly and so ferociously. Oh, yeah. And again, like exactly like with the idea of like the mad scientist and his assistant, surely this film is where villagers with pitchforks and flaming torches came from, right? I is would it? think
0: so. Yeah, I would think so. Yeah, I'd say I what I love fire in old movies (laughs) I just I I don't know whether it's to do with much looser safety regulations um Or whether it's something about, about black and white movies and, and the way uh, the camera's picked up the light. There's just something primal and chaotic about fire in, in these mm. movies. And you, you get it particularly with those flaming torches here and mm. uh, the, the windmill burning down as well at the end. Uh, you, you get it in uh, Kurosawa a lot as well. Mm. If, I, I don't know how much Kurosawa you've seen, but he plays with the elements all the time. So there is always rain going on. There's always fire yeah. going on. There's always wind happening. Um, and it's just, yeah. it's, it's so exciting. To see on screen. Yeah. Um, and that is how I feel about the flaming torches in this. They're, they're yeah. just, just, just so chaotic and alive.
1: When Frankenstein and the creature are confronting each other on that little sort of rocky plateau, mm. and Frankenstein like throws his torch to the ground and then rolls over it. And you're like Mate, Don't Clive, that. <laughs> what are you doing? Like you just that? rolled over a proper flame. You set yourself on fire.
0: Nightmare. Absolute nightmare. Yeah,
1: <laughs> i tell you one other thing I absolutely adore about that ending sequence. I've skipped slightly over into when they're actually inside the windmill, but there yeah. is that incredible back and forth shot where mm-hmm. the creature and Frankenstein are looking at each other through the slats in one of the bits of the mechanism of the windmill. And it's like they're looking through a zoetrope.
0: And Oh wow! Yeah,
1: and to me, to me that can only be a reference to the very very early days of cinema. So you get that effect of the zoetrope mm-hmm. going round, but you're looking at the face of the creature and the face of Frankenstein as they look into each other's eyes and kind of they're sort of weighing each other up, and it's like a kind a moment of knowing, but through this sort of cinematic filter. And it's just like you know when you just think like, okay, every part of this has been meticulously planned. Mm-hmm. That isn't just cool. This is like he's like no it's really important that this is the shot that I choose and use at this moment to convey this thing at this point because it's all sets Mm -hmm. it's not like they went and burnt down a windmill it took my breath away actually that little moment I was like whoa (laughs) (laughs) yeah
0: it's and I, I do I do love that image of the windmill burning down because you still you still get a lot of fire in movies today but it just never feels as dangerous
1: well because you know that like <laughs> Boris Karloff was probably just up a ladder with a load of fire
0: yeah
1: like you know there's no trickery
0: actually you know you know you know where you know where there is some mad chaotic fire towards the end of Nightmare on Elm Street which tumbles down the stairs covered in fire that's yeah, great yeah. apparently the stuntman went a lot further than he discussed with uh, Wiz Craven
1: I love watching B footage of stuntmen who you have to do bits where they're on fire mm. it's just it's so interesting
0: yeah <laughs> this guy's just set himself on fire <laughs> and yeah. that, that's his job today Look, stump men are a different breed much respect to the stuntmen and women
1: what incredible people films of this era and older they feel like well, and, and indeed, they—they they almost are objects of antiquity. <laughs> Frankenstein—we're only seven years away from it. Actually, being an antique legally, like into in the definition of antique, is that right? Well, yeah. If if something is a hundred years or older, then it is that an antique is what class officially. It an antique? Huh. Yeah, as opposed to vintage, but the black and white thing because of the quality of the filmmaking equipment that they had, that kind of grainy quality and all of that stuff that you get with earlier cinema, and also just in terms of its content, how tame it seems to our eyes now, all of those things, it all it, it can be a big barrier to people. I think, and it, it's a barrier to me to a lot of films but frankenstein doesn't at any point feel old
0: no there are things about it that are dated as you said with terms of in terms of the technology also i would say the the performance style is yes. dated. It's, there's a there's a theatricality to the performance style which i actually mm-hmm. really like because i think it sort of heightens the weirdness it goes hand in hand with what you were saying about the um, german expressionist quality mm. of the filmmaking the the heightened theatrical performances sort of mm. add to that Sense of un, uh, otherworldliness that you get from from the design of it, from the visual design thing. Yeah. The film itself feels really fresh to me. Yeah, it's not dusty. It, its bones are not creaking. Mm. <laughs> well, an hour and ten minutes. It doesn't have time for the bones to creak.
1: <laughs> oh my god! But Ed, wasn't it a fucking pleasure to watch
0: an hour and ten minute movie? Wasn't it just? My goodness. Yeah, I am very much looking forward to uh, Guillermo del Toro's version. I think that'd yes, be really too. interesting because he has uh, an affinity for and a sympathy with monsters. I think he will bring some really interesting things to the Frankenstein story. Um, it seems
1: like he's assembling a really good team as well, like Oscar Isaac, Andrew Garfield, Christoph Waltz and Mia Goth. Okay, I'm into that as a cast. I like all those people. Um, so, is there anything else that you want to say about Frankenstein before we...
0: No, I think it's probably time, isn't it?
1: Yes. <laughs> um, so, we're going to do our three stages. Mm-hmm. We're going to... Ed's going to tell me what he would have chosen. He's going to tell me what he thinks I would have chosen. Mm-hmm. And then I'm going to tell you all what I've chosen.
0: So Ed, um, yeah, what would you have gone for? Oh. Yeah, it's difficult to know where to go with this, but I think short of um, correcting my own mistake and insisting that we watch Bride of Frankenstein immediately next week, <laughs> um, <laughs> no, what what I would do, yeah, I would follow the cinematographer Arthur Edelston and we would be watching the Maltese Falcon. Oh, because uh, I've never seen it. Uh, I could have chosen Casablanca because i love it but i've seen it a bunch of times i've never seen maltese falcon and that would have been quite good fun i think
1: that would have been great and it would have launched us into a very different period of american cinema which would have been really interesting as a contrast so yeah
0: yeah um and yeah the tributaries we could go to from that i'm sure mm. that would have led us to some very interesting areas um mm-hmm. yeah i assume you've not done that though so what i think oh goodness what do i think you might have done it's really, really <laughs> difficult this week. It's, it's um, really hard, yeah. So, um, all I could think, when thinking about what you might pick, like, the, the the link that was interesting to me was other films where there is just crazy mob behaviour and mentality. And I alighted on uh, the recent satirical black comedy horror movie, Assassination Nation. <gasps> oh, it's so good, Ed! <laughs> <laughs> that is what I, I would... Uh, I would imagine that you would pick.
1: That's a fantastic shout. Um, Have you seen it? Yeah, yeah, I think I
0: watched it in lockdown.
1: I really enjoyed it. I haven't chosen that, but that's a really good shout. Of course, if um, if I had gone down the angry mob, flaming torches route, I could also have gone for one of your absolute favourite films, in the Beast. Oh, yeah. That's got a great angry mob and a really good angry mob song, actually. <laughs> it does, it does. I haven't gone for that, I'm afraid. I There were a, a few different things that I was considering and I narrowed it down to three options. I was going to go for Young Frankenstein, Yay. Um, which felt like a fairly obvious connection, but I just thought it's quite nice to kind of skip over into a different genre mm. potentially. And I've only seen it once and I didn't enjoy it as much as I was hoping I would. Mm-hmm. So I would like to see it again and just see if it kind of warm, warms, not warms on me, it, if I warm, warm to it. it. Yeah. <laughs> the other option I was thinking about doing another kind of uh, take on the Frankenstein story going into some real cult cinema
0: mm.
1: and watching the Rocky Horror Picture Show
0: oh cool I've never seen it all the way through
1: ah have you not it kind of it's a film that I haven't seen since I was in my teens I feel odd that I can't remember more about it but I would I would love to re-watch it so maybe at some point we will come to it because that would be really good fun yeah. I haven't gone for that I've decided thematically mm. um, to go with another film that looks at reanimation or resurrection. Okay. And it's actually it's something we've discussed already on the podcast, but we have actually discussed it in its novel form. We mm. are going to watch the 1989 film adaptation of Stephen King's Pet Sematary. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So the the, uh, the 1989 version, not the uh, recent version?
1: Not the 2019 version, right. although I will say I am going to watch both mm-hmm. and I would love to talk about the... Remake as well, mm-hmm. and it also does feel quite timely because this month, in fact, I think possibly even in the last couple of days, the new Pet Cemetery film, Pet Cemetery Bloodlines, has been released on Paramount Plus. Oh, really, and that serves as a prequel to the 2019 film. Yeah. Have you seen it before, Ed? The 1989
0: uh, Yeah, one? I've I've seen both versions. Yeah, I've seen the 89 yeah, one, yeah. And the 2019 one. Yeah, marvelous. Yeah, looking forward to this.
1: I feel like it could either be total pants. <laughs> <laughs> Or, like a total gem. I think at the moment you can watch it if you have a Paramount Plus subscription package as part of your Amazon, or if you've just got it independently. But otherwise, I'm afraid you do have to rent it. So I'm so sorry. You are going to have to part with a couple of quid, but hopefully, it'll be worth it. Yeah. So um, I think all that remains to say is thank you very much for joining us for this episode of the Unbreakable Movie Chain. If you like what you hear, please do rate, review, subscribe and tell your friends to listen wherever they get their podcasts. Um, you can get in touch with us on any of the social medias and by email. All of that information is down in the show notes. And yet, yeah, can't wait to uh, see you in a couple of weeks for Pet Cemetery. Yee. It's goodbye from me and it's goodbye for us. Bye. From
0: Bye. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Later.